0: Oftentimes, it starts with a birth. It's
1: breathe, breathe, push.
0: She's coming, one more push. Well, you cut the cord. The official people, the people who know, they clean the baby up, bring her back to you, and you sit, holding this being this person looking into her eyes as she looks back up at you maybe then for the first time you start to think about what you're going to leave behind to the hand snap judgment we proudly present Legacy Legacy amazing stories of what happens next my name is Glenn Washington fellas Keep believing in that weaker sex thing if that makes you feel better when you're listening Listen. Listening, 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 to Snap Judgment. Now, Snappers, we start off the legacy episode with everything you've ever wanted from a story. Priceless jewelry, a bitter business rivalry, shady mob connections, and of course, call forwarding. Snap judgments. Joe Rosenberg explains.
2: This is a story about an inventor. You've probably never heard of him, but you've definitely heard of the things he made.
1: Conference call, call forwarding, voice print recognition... Um, the red phone that dialed the Kremlin for Eisenhower. There was 39 total inventions.
2: This is Walter Shaw Jr. He's not the inventor. The inventor was his father, Walter Shaw Sr. And he says that his dad didn't start off as a creator type. He was a dock worker.
1: But a friend of his, he says, listen, I can get you on with Bell Telephone as alignment. So he strung cable at a penny a mile on a bicycle. And one day the foreman looked at him and says, you know, you get this pretty good, because he understood the system. So they put him up the ranks, and uh, he ended up going to work for Bell Labs.
2: Bell Labs was the research arm of Bell Telephone. And back in the 1930s and 40s, Bell was the largest telecommunications company in the world. So Bell Labs was the equivalent of Google X. It was where they were developing all the cool next-generation stuff. And
1: once Walter was there... He flourished and uh, on his off time uh, he'd go home and and tinker and make things Walter Jr. was just a little kid
2: then and he remembers his dad spending hours at his desk at home making endless drawings
1: and he says "Uh, son if if, when I draw it it'll work when I build it I said dad you sure he's something positive I was intrigued by his laboratory which we used to have in the garage and he'd show me everything he was tinkering with everything those are my fondest memories. He was a wonderful man, the kindest I ever met in my life, unfortunately. You know how they say the road to hell
2: is paved with good intentions? Well, Walter Sr.'s road to hell was paved when a very wealthy industrial magnate visited him at his home.
1: And he came to my father and he says, my wife is a paraplegic. And she, she had a bunch of children and she lived in an iron lung. So my dad went back to his house, who was so touched by that experience, he sat down and he came up with this hands-free device that would enable her to be able to talk to her children by phone.
2: In other words, the phone was voice-activated. And no, voice activation didn't exist back then. Walter was effectively inventing it for this woman on the fly.
1: And he was so proud of it. He took it underneath his arm and went to Bell and showed him that morning. They said, you made this by yourself? He said, yes, sir, I did. And Bell told my father in that meeting, well, it's a great invention. How do you plan to hook it up to our lines?
2: You see, back then there was no way to plug or unplug a phone. Bell was a monopoly. They owned the whole system. They owned the phone lines. They owned the line going from your wall to your phone. They owned your phone. You just rented it. So when Bell saw that Walter had invented something that you could hook up to the phone line yourself, that wasn't good. It threatened their monopoly. So they asked Walter to sign a contract, handing his invention over to them.
1: My dad said his whole life, he says, the inventor should always own the invention no matter whose watch he's on. So my dad quit, and he filed the patent on it, and Bell was going to stop him.
2: After that, Walter moved from state to state, trying to find wealthy investors for his inventions who might be gutsy enough to take on Bell's monopoly. And he took Walter Jr. and the rest of the family with him.
1: I was in 11 first grades, Joe. 11 first grades I was in. Plainfield, East Orange, Orange, Newark, uh, Patterson, New Jersey, Secaucus. We were in Westchester by Maranick. We moved to Oklahoma City. We moved to Ohio. And with each
2: new move came a new invention. Walter built some of the first practical speaker phones, the earliest answering machines. But perhaps the thing he was proudest of was the conference call.
1: Came to him during his sleep, the last thing he was missing, and he called us down at 7 at breakfast to show us the demonstration of the conference call. And I said, well, Dad, who cares about having two conversations on a line? Who gives a flying zip about that? He said, you'll say it's going to be a big deal.
2: But Walter was never able to get any of these inventions off the ground, at least not in a way that benefited him. Because not only did Bell have a monopoly, they also had the law on their side. It was a misdemeanor, a literal crime, to attach anything to a telephone line without the company's
1: permission. It's called unauthorized attachment Bell lines. So the inventions never brought us a dollar, not five cents, because Bell shut them down. Walter
2: says his dad tried to put on a brave face for his family,
1: but his war with Bell took a toll. He was up against a company that had broke him and busted him he watched us have no lights, watched us live in places that were, were evicting us, watched me have one pair of pants and come home and have to hang them up at the school. My mother knew every way to fix grits and Tina with cheese and eggs, and that's what we lived off of most of our time. And we were having it really hard. Until one day, Walter was introduced to
2: a friend of a friend who had the potential to solve all his problems. This friend of a friend? We'll just call him Archie. We're not going to tell you his last name.
1: He told my dad who he was. He said, listen, I'm a bookmaker. Translation, he was a mobster. And we book thousands of phone calls a day on on games. But the problem I have is I get raided, and the police knock down our doors, and he says, I was wondering if you could do something where they couldn't find me so fast.
2: Now, up to this point, Walter Shaw had been as straight as they come. He wasn't eager to do business with the mob.
1: But my dad wanted to save his family, and he just had enough. So my dad said, well, give me a a week or so to think about it and I'll get back to you. And what Walter came back to Archie with was
2: this box. It was about the size of a pack of cigarettes.
1: And it plugged in next to the phone where Archie lived.
2: Walter explained that so long as this box was attached to a phone, any phone, all incoming calls would register as incomplete. So there'd be no record of a phone call for the police to find it would be untraceable. But first, they had to test
1: it. And they went to a pay phone, and they put a dime in and dialed Archie's number, and when they hung up, the dime came back. So it worked, and it was also toll-free.
2: Archie and the other mobsters, they loved it. Once they installed Walter's device at Archie's place, business started booming.
1: But like all people... Not just wise guys, but like all people, they wanted more. He said, well, I, I like that. Is there a way we can make calls out undetected? Walter just said, give me a couple days.
2: And then, lo and behold, he made a device for outgoing calls.
1: But like all things, that wasn't good enough. They wanted one that could follow them around the boroughs.
2: In other words, they wanted all their calls to be untraceable, no matter what phone they were using. <laughs>
1: So my dad says, all right, we'll make that.
2: And this third device, it was probably the best one. It was just a small box that sat in an empty apartment that the mob rented out. And if you wanted to call someone to talk, not just about placing a bet, but really anything illegal, all you needed to do was call the box, and it would transfer you to the person you actually wanted to reach.
1: That was the predecessor to a thing that would come 10, 15 years later called call floating. But its street name was something a little sexier. A black box, because everything got epoxied, and he'd color it with black crayon. So if it ever got in the wrong hands, they couldn't take it apart, and they couldn't copy it. And um, when, when one fell into Bell Labs' hands, they never could figure out how it worked.
2: Of course, Walter Jr. didn't know any of this at the time. He was still too young. All he knew was that their family life was improving. He finally owned nice clothes. They could eat decent meals. He was even enrolled in boarding school, and on weekends, he'd go into New York with his dad. And it was in New York that he first met Archie.
1: And I was in awe of this magnificent, uh, fast-talking, well-dressed man. You know, shiny shoes, chauffeur-driven, the whole nine yards. I mean, he was immaculate. So I walked up to him. I says, uh, you, you dress nice. He said, do you have any need for cufflinks? Because I had a uh, <laughs> these costume cufflinks. They were worth nothing, really. And Archie says, yeah, I could use an extra pair of cufflinks. Now, he knew the gig. He knew it was junk. But he didn't let on like he knew it was junk. He did it like it was the first time he ever saw a nice pair of cufflinks. So, without hesitation, he peeled off a roll that would choke a horse, and he handed me a $50 bill. First time I ever saw a $50 bill up close and personal. And that was my liking him right away. After that, Walter
2: started hanging out with Archie all the time. He couldn't get enough of him. He remembers Archie would take him to Mulberry Street in Little Italy and show him the sights.
1: I was starting to emulate him and looking up to him as my hero. And we were walking down where the fishmongers are, and he says, you see these these dead fish here on the ice?" I said, yeah. He says, remember one thing. If they hadn't opened their mouth, they'd never been caught. I said, what does that mean? He says, it means you never say something you don't want somebody else to repeat or get you in trouble. Keep everything in, underneath your vest. I said, yeah, you're right. So I always kept that in my uh, head. At the time, what did your father tell you Archie did? Like,
2: did you understand what he and your father were involved in?
1: I had no idea. He told me they were were accountants. And he was designing a special piece of equipment for these guys that were going to use it in their accounting work. And that was his cover story.
2: But then one day, Walter was at boarding school waiting for his dad to come pick him up and drive him into New York, like he always did.
1: And I saw him pull in, I waved and smiled, and all of a sudden I saw a car behind him, not knowing what was going on. And my dad got out, and these guys behind him got out and made a gesture, and he got back in the car, and they sped off after him. And I never never kind of understood that, and then the headmaster of the school came and got me and put me in the infirmary. And I was locked in. They brought my food, and that's all they do, bring my food, and I'd stay there. And uh, I heard these guys laugh, and one of the kids slid the newspaper out of the door. And it was a headline on the front page, and my dad's name was like third in the column.
2: The headline said that his dad was the mob's personal inventor, that he was the inventor specifically of the infamous black box.
1: I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know who they are talking about, because I didn't think my dad was a gangster. I had no idea. I didn't know what that meant. And the headmaster came in and told me they were expelling me from school because I couldn't be around these other kids because they were sons of doctors and lawyers and politicians and, you know. These rich people didn't think I was good enough to go there. They didn't want this element in their school with their kids. So I took the bus home.
2: How long did that bus ride last?
1: <sighs> Eternity.
2: What did you think about on the bus ride?
1: If it was true, the only thing I could think about is why did my dad lie to me? If it was true, I want to know why he, he didn't tell me, you know?
2: And what did he tell you when you finally talked to him?
1: He told me he made something that was illegal, and it was used for wrong purposes, and that's why he was going there for this case, this trial. He says, I've done something wrong. I said, well, you told me me these were good guys. He says, and the papers don't say that. I says, you lied to me. He says, you're 12 years old. You need to know all this, and one day, you'd know.
2: The thing you have to understand about what happened next is that Walter's dad never went to prison for working with the mob. He even admitted to being the inventor of the black box at a US Senate hearing on organized crime and basically walked away with a slap on the wrist. No, what did Walter's dad in was Bell Telephone. They still wanted to know how his call forwarding device worked. When he refused to tell, he was sentenced to a year in jail in criminal court. And the crime he was convicted of? Not racketeering, not aiding and abetting, no. It was the one that had mattered to Bell all along. Unauthorized attachment of a
1: telephone line. They literally put him in, in Dade County Jail for a year and a day for a misdemeanor.
2: In the wake of all this, as you're growing up, what did it do to your attitude towards the system?
1: Oh, I was done with the system. The system was in my rearview mirror. I saw it with enough money, you can buy justice. You mean like the rich have everything rigged and it's- The a- wealthy. Dude. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you don't see that right now, Joe? Come on, give me a break.
2: The way Walter Jr. saw it, his dad was just a poor inventor who was literally imprisoned for going up against a big corporation. So even though he knew his father regretted ever working with the mafia, Walter Jr. figured that the straight and narrow path was for suckers. And as he grew older, he got more and more involved in crime. Until finally, he told his dad he wanted to join the mob.
1: I says I'm going all the way, which I'm not going to describe what all the way means because this is an Italian thing. And my dad says if you go all the way, then I have no son that was the turning point between me and my father it was never the same it was never the same after that ever
2: walter joined a crew of cat burglars operating out of florida called the dinnertime Gang. why they're called that we'll get to in just a bit
1: and we robbed only the wealthy of america not that that was justification, but that's the way I saw it. I thought I was getting back as society, whatever I did against the wealthy. We'd get together in June to start training, running the beach to build up our legs and our stamina. September would come, we'd get the maps out, and we'd decide where we're going, and then we only work October to January. But mostly because the wealthy are very vain and arrogant, you know, like to brag about what they got, and they like to show it off. And um, their stuff comes out for the party in the season, and that's what season is. October to January.
2: But before they could even rob a house, they had to case it. And before they could case a house, they had to know where all the best jewels were. For that, they had informants
1: in businesses all over Florida. Dealerships, Lincoln's, Cadillac dealerships, we had cleaning services. We had safe services that were putting safes in the houses at that time. We had carpet cleaners, hair salons. We had girls that worked in the banks in the safe deposit box we used to give them at that time 10% of whatever they pointed us to because if the boxes come out on a Friday they can't go back till Monday so they're, where are they going to be in the house and there's no advantage to get them when the house is empty because the best pieces are going to be on them so usually we get like to get them off the big table with the maids and the butlers between dusk and 9 o'clock at night dinner time because she's not gonna be wearing the biggest rocks at dinner in the house with her husband. He knows what he bought her and she knows what he bought her. So she doesn't have to flaunt it. So where's it gonna be? It's gonna be on the dresser upstairs. And normally if the light in the right side of the kitchen is off, that's the master bedroom because it's the one they they keep secluded and dark. And we get the pillowcase off the bed. We find the stuff. It's always close at hand. We lock the door when we go in, so they'll call downstairs and say, Honey, why'd you lock the bedroom door? So we know they've found it, so we gotta leave. And we're not there longer than eight minutes. If you haven't found the stuff in eight minutes, then leave. There's too many other scores you can go after. It's the eight minute rule.
2: Then Walter formed his own group. And this new group, it had its own set of rules.
1: I didn't want to terrorize anybody it was handicapped or elderly. We didn't rob houses that had kids in the house. I didn't want to frighten a child coming in and seeing me with a ski mask on. No sentimental lodges. I used to return them. We did a house Christmas Eve, and my partner had grabbed the little small presents underneath the tree. So I says, they have to go back. He says, what do you mean they have to go back? We never go back to the scene of a crime. I said, these have to go back. Went back and we put them underneath the tree. Nobody else believed in it. They says, you're crazy. You'll get caught. I never did. Actually, there was one time Walter was caught.
2: Kinda. He was standing in the middle of the bedroom, raiding the jewelry box, when the homeowner's mother, a little old woman, appeared.
1: there she was in the doorway in a wheelchair. She said, I'm the only one in the house, and I'm just coming in to use the bathroom. I said, okay. So she said, would you mind? I said, no. So I opened the door and let her in the bathroom. Then she called me when she had to get back in the wheelchair. I helped her back. (laughs) And she came out and asked me if I'd bend down. She kissed me on my mask. She's like, I'll give you fifteen minutes to leave before I call the police. And then we left. It was in the a newspaper. I remember the paper because I have a copy of it, but she told him I was a perfect gentleman. Didn't make me a good guy. I was a thief, remember that. How
2: much did you steal, like in your career total, do you think?
1: I'm only going by what the Fed said. The Fed said it was between seventy and a hundred million retail at that time. And how much of that did you see? 25%. Still no small amount of money. We couldn't live off of it. We all squandered it and it disappeared as fast as we got it. We all lived large, you know. Big homes, Rolls Royces, Ferraris. My wife liked uh, lobster, so I'd take her to Maine to have lobster. Wait, you mean like for the night? Yeah, just for the night. We'd fly up, eat dinner, and come back. And
2: are you seeing your dad at all during this time?
1: Nope. He wouldn't come near me. My mother would come to see my children. But I'd say, Where's dad? She's, Well, you know, dad's, uh, you know. I sent presents, my mother brought them back. Sent watches and jewelry and cars. No. Walter
2: only had one real conversation with his dad during this period, in which his father tried to convince him one last time to leave the mob.
1: He just says, you're going to find out yourself they're not what you think they are. They'll always trade somebody for a better deal. And you're going to get your heart broke because you might be on that end. And I didn't believe that. I said, why are you saying that to me? But he won't really tell me what it is. So he says, go find Archie. Go see him. Go see him. Go find out for yourself. He's up at that diner of his in Mimarinet, go chat and chew. So I, I, uh, I go to see him. and He's an older man, totally gray. And he was sitting at this table, reading the uh, racing forums. And he was sitting with his face to the door. That's how they always sat, you know, So he was coming through the door. And um, he says, I recognize the walk. How are you doing, kid? Like that to me. And I sit down, and he says, what are you up here for? So I said, well, my dad told me to come see you. He says, oh, really? I says, yeah. He says, you've got something you want to tell me, maybe. He says, oh, it's Truth Day. That's how he, say- he named it. He says, it's Truth Day. And of course, Archie tells me the truth.
2: Archie explained that he and Walter's dad had been arrested at the same time
1: and while his dad refused to name
2: anyone Archie Archie caved and told them who made the black box in other words the only reason Walter's father was exposed and put in jail for a year is because Archie his best friend in the mob ratted
1: him out so I said to him, I said, well, what about, what about Marbury Street? What about the pier? What about the fishmongers? And the fish only gets there if he opens his mouth. He said, "No." My words sounded good, didn't they? I says, yeah, they did. I believed every one of them. I hung on them. Then Archie told Walter that the mob had wanted to kill him for ratting on his dad.
2: But his dad asked them not to. He saved Archie's life.
1: He said, your dad was a stand-up guy. He took the fall for all of us. And he got the least out of everything then I stood up and I left
2: Did you consider quitting the business after that?
1: It wasn't going to happen like that no I knew a lot of secrets at that time and they would have never let me out like that without killing me
2: you can't really like you can't just say I'm going straight but your your secrets die with me
1: No, that doesn't work now it does but not not then not 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 the way things were no you'll never get out till you get killed or you go to prison? And
2: that's eventually what happened. Seven years after he first joined the dinnertime gang, someone from his old crew ratted him out. The U.S. Attorney's Office convicted Walter on three counts of burglary. And in a cruel twist of fate, 18 months after Walter Jr. was convicted, so was his dad. Walter Sr. had been testing out a new invention, with which he was accused of making illegal long-distance calls.
1: And they gave me life and special pro for the habitual Offender Act. And they gave my dad four years in Kentucky federal prison. So we both had the same fate, but I belonged there a lot more than he did.
2: Walter and his dad wouldn't really reconnect until years later, long after they'd both gotten out. Walter Jr. was living in Florida. He'd finally gone straight. And for his 50th birthday, his wife decided to throw him a surprise party.
1: And um, it was a very emotional scene when I got home There was my cousins and people in the living room. There was my dad in the middle of the group. And uh, it was just like he was the only one in the room. He looked tattered. He looked shriveled up. He wasn't as big as I remember him. And he was as dignified as he possibly could. He always wore his socks no matter what, and he always had a tie on. And uh, my wife had pulled me aside and says, "Uh, your dad has holes in his shoes. He was homeless. He was living in a bus station. And uh, he told me that week, he says, I'm dying. Of course, that rocked me. I said, what do you mean you're dying? He says, I've got cancer. It's, It's metastasized. It's gone through my body. I've got 18 months left. So I kept him in the house. He didn't want to be in a hospital. He begged me not to go
2: there. From that point on, Walter and his family effectively sat a
1: death watch for his father. I always wondered if he had regrets about my life and about, you know, how I met people as you want to say it. And I never knew. He never never expressed it all the years you know, in between. never told me. So one night as I was watching him and he was laying there and I sat in the stairs and the lights were off except that we left a little nightlight on so I could see if he's okay. I see his hand go up and he waves to me. And I knew at that point he's going to tell me now. And of course, I go w- over his bed, Joe, and I sit down next to him. He says, Teal, I want to tell you something. I said, Dad, if this is truth day i was going down this road a long time ago long time ago i went left you went right you had nothing to do with putting the gun in my hand i chose that so he says is that how you want it he had a little smile come back to his face i said that's the way it is dad He says that's how you want it okay i says dad why why do you think we we never benefited from your inventions he said, my inventions will speak long after I'm gone, Teal. That's my reward. You know, I'm not mad about anything. But I'm not bitter at anybody. I said, really, Dad? He said, not even the men that hurt me. And if you go through life thinking you're going to get back, you're not. He says, Teal, you're not going to get even. So you better let it go. You can put the sword away. So that was our last conversation. I was sitting by his bed. The light was down on his face. We could see each other.
0: Thank you so much to Walter Shaw for sharing his story with The Snap. To learn more about Walter's dad's life as an inventor, Check out the documentary Genius on Hold and Walter's own memoir, License to Steal. As for Walter himself, today he's a movie producer and he's currently producing a film called The Unknowns. Talent is colorblind. The film tells the story of The Highway, a group of self-taught African-American painters living in the Jim Crow South who, when no one was looking, invented a whole new style of art. We highly recommend you check it out. We'll have links to everything on our website, SnapJudgment.org. Original sound design and score was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Joe Rosenberg. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, ask yourself how far would you go to fulfill someone's dying wish? When the Legacy episode continues, stay tuned. From WNYC, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the legacy episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today, what do you owe the people who come after? And what do you owe the people who just left? We're going back in time and space across the globe to the city of Xi'an in communist China, where life for little Wen Huang and his family was about to dramatically change. Wen, take it away.
3: One day in 1974, when my grandmother was 72 years old, over dinner table, she suddenly told dad, she said, I'm going to die very soon. And we were all shocked. And the father was asking grandmother, what happened? Are you ill? No. When a person reaches the ages of 73 or 84, the king of hell will make his call. We never, I never heard about that thing before. So we asked the science behind it, but grandma just said, it has been passed down from generation to generation. It had to be true. And then she told father specifically that she won't be buried. And in those days, burial was banned all over China.
4: Under Chairman Mao and the Communist Party, burials were a waste of land, and had religious Confucian roots that did not sit well with the party.
3: So back then,
4: everyone was cremated. There was no exception. But Wen's feisty grandma did not care. This was her dying wish, and she was going to fight to the death for a proper death. So she began to bother her son, Wen's dad, on the daily.
3: The barrel request really put father in an impossible position because it took him 15 years to be admitted into the Communist Party. He was actually a poster child. He was the model worker, like, you know, the employee of the month thing here. Like my dad, I was also a fervent believer in communism. At school, I was the leader of the Little Red Guard organization. Every day, we would go out and sing songs about condemning Confucianism and building a new society.
4: Wen and his family knew firsthand that if you broke with the party,
3: the party could break you. If they found out that he was secretly preparing for his mother's funeral, seriously, he could lose his job. He could be publicly denounced at meetings like attended by tens of thousands of people. I constantly attended those meetings. It would be such a disgrace and disaster for our family. So when's dad tried to talk grandma out of it. He began by telling her about how peaceful cremation was. My father told her, it wasn't bad at all. When we die, our minds are gone and we cease to exist. Why does it matter what happens to our bodies? But she shook her head and said, I don't want to be tortured in fire after I die.
4: Truth be told, a proper burial was not all she wanted. She had one more teeny tiny request.
3: I want to be sent back to my ancestral village. I want to be buried with my husband. We couldn't believe in what we heard.
4: Everything she wanted until now was already punishable. But this was impossible because Grandpa, who had died 40 years ago, was buried 500 miles away.
3: You could only get there on a train, a long-distance bus, and then a horse-drawn cart.
4: But she said distance ain't no excuse, because once she was reunited with her husband's spirit, according to Confucian belief, Harmony would finally be restored to the family line. Up until then, Grandma said that the family had
3: been cursed with war and famine and she was going to do something about it. She made it like that she wasn't doing it for herself. She did it for us. Without the blessings of your ancestors, you will be in disaster. And I just thought, oh, grandmother was just being superstitious. She will snap out of it. But grandma played her ace on how she took Wen's dad as a little boy
4: and escaped Japanese control by walking several hundred miles on her bound feet. How if he was a good son, he would honor her last wish.
3: Also like my dad, I feel very conflicted about it because my grandma raised me until I was five or six years old.
4: Wen's mom was so committed to the revolution, she went right back to work after his birth.
3: Every night I slept uh, in my grandma's bed and then in the wintertime she would go into bed first to warm up the quilt and then I would get in. So my grandmother was literally my surrogate mother.
4: But Wen's dad would have none of it. It was just too risky. So grandma was warned. She was given an explanation. But...
3: <clears throat>
4: Nevertheless, she persisted.
3: For a while, my father was stressed out. I could tell that he became more and more withdrawn. And sometimes I woke up in the middle of the night, I could hear him murmuring to my mother. If poster boy dad was against it, then his wife? My mother wanted nothing to do with the burial. One thing you have to know about my mother and my grandmother, these two are very strong-willed women. They just couldn't get along with each other. There was a Chinese saying that said, two tigers can't live side by side in the same household. My mother was born in the year of the tiger. My grandma was born in the year of the tiger. Also, since my grandmother, she was a widow, she and my father was very close. And she had such a strong hold over my father. And each time there was a fight, my father would close the door first and then the windows and then would say, please lower your voice. The neighbors will laugh at us. And my mother would say, I don't care. I want all the neighbors to know what a wimp you are. So finally, one day, father got us together around the table and then said, your grandmother has sacrificed so much for us. It is our turn to make some sacrifice for her. We're going to save money so that she can have her wish for barrel. This must be our secret. My mother was silent. She just stepped out. Grandmother, she was relieved. Say, said, oh, I'm not doing this for myself. This is for the future of the Huang family, blah, blah, blah.
4: Against his wife's wishes, Dad dove into his clandestine coffin operation. He began penny-pinching from anyone, anywhere. He even sold off his work gloves and face masks to local hospitals for extra cash. Then he bribed friends who could help transport the coffin and found two amateur tailors to make his mom a shoyi, a beautiful traditional funeral dress. Last but not least, dad borrowed money to purchase wood and hired a black market carpenter who was willing to build the coffin.
3: All the expenses would take at least two to three years to pay off. And oh, my mother was furious. When the coffin was finally
4: done, guess where they hid it.
3: I saw this big sinister looking coffin where my bed used to be. I said, that's a coffin. And my dad said, no, don't call it a coffin. It's called shoumu, or longevity wood. That really spooked me because soon my grandma would be buried in it. I started to have some fantasies. Maybe she had a point and those superstitious things might be true. All our family will be blessed and I could be a big shot. On the other hand, because my grandmother's stupid quest for burial, we suddenly find ourselves without money all the time. One time my mother had the opportunity to travel to Shanghai. She was very excited. So she wanted to buy a new winter coat. When she told my father, he said, No, we don't have money. Imagine how angry she was. She just left that night. And after my mother stepped out of the house, my grandmother did the usual thing. What a terrible woman. She's a.
4: With the money saved, dad told the family that the burial preparations were good to go.
3: After my father made that announcement, grandmother suddenly fell ill, as if to prove her point that she could die. She started to have this fever, and she became bedridden. My father became so nervous. And my mother, it's time for her to go. And then around 2 o'clock in the morning, she suddenly woke up everybody. She said, I think I'm going to die soon. And then she brought me to her bedside, and then saying she would have her last words for me. Oh my god, this is finally going to happen. I was very nervous, and then I started to sob and start to cry. And I was also hoping that this could be like the movies. She was going to reveal some life-changing secrets to me. Things like, I have hidden some silver dollars between the kitchen walls. After I die, you should dig it out. Don't share it with your annoying sisters or something like that. So I was waiting for that. And then guess what she said? She said, after I die, you should keep practicing cooking. This way, you don't have to suffer at the hands of your wife like your father does. I wanted to laugh, but on the other hand, she was so serious. And then the doctor came. He felt her pulse, and then he said, Grandma Huang, you are not going to die. Your pulse is very strong. You'll be able to live up to 100. And we all felt relieved. The next morning, she acted as if nothing had happened.
4: Over the next few months, it seemed like every time grandma was about to kick the can, she would magically get better. So her 73rd birthday
3: came around. She didn't die. Her 74th birthday came. She was okay. Then 75th, nope. And then 70s, Such 81, 82, 83, when she passed 84, we were like, oh my God, grandmother was going to outlive all of us, which was not a joke. One day, my mother called me and saying that uh, my father started to cough blood. Then I got on the phone with my father. They said, I can't talk to you now. A group of Christian ladies have come to pray for me. I said, what? Father, you're a Communist Party member. Religion is an opiate for the masses. Why do you do this? He said, I don't care, whatever works. You know, he was desperate.
4: The doctor said Wen's dad was in the final stage of lung cancer, probably from inhaling the thick lead dust at work without those face masks, the ones he sold to raise money for grandma's coffin. So Wen, who was now in college, left class, bought a train ticket, and 27 hours later, saw his dad for the last time.
3: When I saw him in the hospital, even though he was hooked up to numerous tubes, he seemed to be okay. He was very happy to see me, so I thought he would have more time. But uh, two hours later, he lost consciousness. He looked so peaceful, and he died. My mother felt very devastated. She wouldn't step out of the house. I was so angry. I felt that he spent the better part of his life preparing for this stupid funeral. I felt like her stubborn request really sucked my father dry. On the other hand, I pitied my grandmother because I felt like it was very tragic for my father to die so young. So as the oldest grandson, I decided to carry the mantle and uh, fulfill my grandmother and my father's wishes. Almost a year after my father died, I have this weird feeling like something was going to happen.
4: So he called his sister at her work to check in. But she didn't answer. Instead, it was her colleague who said,
3: Oh, your sister is not in the office. Your grandma just died. She was 87. The king of hell was uh, three years late. Mother did not tell me that grandma had died.
4: By now, Wen was living in Chicago. So he started packing for his journey home
3: then i talked with my mother on the phone and discussed plans to take care of the funeral arrangement because everybody expected me to do that and then she said something which i didn't expect there is no need for you to come back i can take care of it i i just was stunned i didn't trust her my grandmother would be furious if she knew that her rivalry and the person who she disliked was sending her off. I wondered if she was going to do the things that my father had planned. But she did. My mother began checking off all the tasks that I should have done. That made me feel a little guilty. But I was also pleasantly surprised. Maybe she had a change of her mind.
4: Wen's mom said she was already gathering the friends, family, pallbearers, drivers, gravediggers. And eventually, grandma was laid to rest in a grave. And the urn containing dad's ashes were buried near the bottom left of the coffin.
3: His location at the feet of his mother meant the son would always be at his mother's service. But then my mother didn't go all the way. She didn't do all the things that she was supposed to do. Rather than sending my grandmother to her home village, she decided to bury grandmother in the suburb outside Xi'an. She had her own reason. She said, it will be so easy if you want to pay tribute to your father and your grandmother. You can just hop on the bus. It will take 30 minutes to go there deep in my mind I was saying oh yeah right mother she just tried to find excuse I think the reason that my mother did not go all the way it was her way of saying I honor your wish but I don't want to go all the way you know it's like she, she got the last laugh soon after my mom called me in Chicago where I now live to brag about her accomplishment. She said, "I can now relax." Then 2 weeks later, she had a stroke. Mother never recovered. And so, did you end up taking care
4: of your mom's funeral?
3: Yes. Where did you bury her? She's buried next to my my father, who actually is next to my grandma at my <laughs> grandmother's feet. It's, it's funny that the two tigers could never live in the same house when they were alive, but now, maybe now that in the afterworld they would uh, become good friends. I hope it's going to be a long time. <laughs> Sorry.
0: A couple of years ago, Wynn finally was able to reunite grandma and grandpa in spirit and in soil. Kind of. Because according to an elderly relative, the next best thing to physically relocating grandma's remains next to her husband's was to gather a cup of dirt from grandma's grave and bury a small wooden dummy with grandpa's name engraved on it. So that's what Wynn did. And now he hopes his grandparents and parents are finally satisfied thank you Wynn for sharing your story with the Snap Wynn is a Chicago-based writer and translator if you want to know more about this family coffin story check out his book The Little Red Guard we we'll have links on our website snapjudgment.org the original sound design was by Davey Kim it was produced by Davey triple threat Kim here's the good news you have just scratched the surface of Snap Storytelling. There is more, so much more amazing cinema sound waiting for you right now on the Snapchat the Podcast. Get some. And if you dig them, leave a brother a review on iTunes, if you don't mind. Thanks, player. And hit Snapchat on Facebook, my Twitter, G-L-Y-N-N Washington. Tweet, tweet. Okay, so... You may have caught word on the street, but this is not the news. No way, it's just the news. In fact, you can write a note to your great, great, great grandkids, stick it in a titanium reinforced lead encased box, bury that box in an underground climate controlled chamber, but forget to tell someone where that chamber actually is and you would still, still, not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is, W-N-Y-C-C.